Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we are live for an hour each weekday afternoon taking your calls. Uh, if you would like to be on the program, you can call with questions you have about the Bible or about the Christian faith and we'll be glad to discuss those with you. If you have a different viewpoint from the host, we're always glad to discuss that with you as well. Right now, our lines are all open. It's, it's very rare that I look at a switchboard that's wide open, but it's a good opportunity for you. If you want to call now, you'll get through. The number to call is 844-484-5737. At this point, you could be the first to get through. And if you're not, you'll get on the switchboard anyway, and we'll, uh, we'll get to your call today. The number again, 844-484-5737. I'm going to make one announcement about today. Uh, Tonight I'm speaking in Maricopa, which is south of Phoenix, uh, by some distance, in a meeting that is almost full. In fact, it may have filled up since I last looked, but it's uh, some of the meetings we've had here in the Phoenix area have been full uh, long before the meeting were held. Right now, I just checked today online, it looks like it's almost entirely full, and perhaps you can get uh, in if you want to. Uh, if you go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, under announcements, you can see where that meeting is. It's tonight from about 6 o'clock to about 8.30. Now, besides that, there's something that people anywhere can participate in, two things, debates. Uh, I have been asked to debate a dispensationalist and, uh, and Max, the atheist who calls our show regularly, and so... Uh, I guess I'm going to debate the dispensations on a lot of different subjects. They made they kind of made a laundry list of things they're interested. They all have to do with a dispensational outlook, uh, and they want me to debate. So uh, I'll be doing that. That's on the 16th, which is, uh, I guess it's this coming Friday, isn't it? So this Friday at, I think, 5 p.m. Pacific time, uh, I'll be debating a dispensationalist, and the link to that debate, if it is not already there, will be at our website under announcements. Then on the 24th, which is a Saturday, just a, you know, a couple weeks from now, actually, I will be debating uh, Max, the atheist, who once uh, we will be debating online. You'll be able to watch that if you want to. Um, on the subject, is Christianity true? A very you know, general and uh, essential topic. And so uh, we're going to also have that posted if we don't already. Now, I don't generally post things on the website. Someone does, and uh, these debates have very recently been uh, uh, nailed down, as it were. So uh, I don't know if it's on the website yet, but certainly before the event, it will be. And so you'll be able to log on, and uh, I I think one of them is going to be streamed to YouTube. Maybe both of them are, and I'm not sure if one of them is by Zoom. I I know very little about the technology. I just show up and and do what they tell me to do. But... um, it, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's on Zoom, anybody who's interested will be able to to uh, watch, I believe. And then, of course, when they're done, we'll have them posted probably at our YouTube channel or somewhere. But um, if those links are not yet at our website, I haven't checked, they will be before the events. You might want to mark your calendar. The dispensationalist uh, that I'll be uh, debating, I've never met him or heard of him before, so I don't know, how, you know much about that debate, but that's coming up this Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And then it's about a week later, Saturday the 24th, will be the debate with uh, Max, the atheist, about 
Is Christianity True? So I know a lot of you are interested probably in one or the other of those. Keep looking uh, at our website, thenarrowpath.com, under announcements, and you'll see uh, how to join us for those debates if you're interested. Okay, uh, Terry from Georgia is our first caller today. Terry, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hey, thanks, Steve. Um, I just got a quick question. Genesis, I believe it's Genesis 6, 6. I'm not really sure right now, but um, it says God made them male and female. And then right underneath that, in another verse, he talks about making Adam and Eve. So who is he talking about he created when he first says he made them uh, male and female? And I'm going to hang up and let you answer that. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, first of all, it's not Genesis 6. It's Genesis 1, 26 that, uh, and 27 that says that God said, let us make man in our image and let us give him dominion over the rest of the creation, as he says it. Then it says, so God made man in his own image, male and female. He created them, which is a very summary statement of the creation of uh, the man and the woman, uh, just as the rest of chapter 1 of Genesis is a very summary statement of the creation. Each day is treated very quickly without much detail. You know, each day he did one thing, usually, sometimes two things. In the case of the sixth day, he did two things. He made the land animals and the human beings. So chapter one of Genesis runs through this sequence rapidly without, without the narrative detaining itself to give in many details. And after that narrative is done, and, and that actually goes through chapter two, verse three, because uh, the beginning of chapter 2 gives us the seventh day when God rested. So after you get through chapter 2, verse 3, there's a, another narrative about the creation. It's not a subsequent creation, but it's a subsequent narrative. Uh, in other words, it's going over some of the same material again, but giving more detail. In particular, the focus is on the sixth day. And that's because the sixth day was the most important day, the day that God made human beings. I mean... Uh, everything God made is, I'm sure, significant in its own place, but when it comes to fish, birds, animals, plants, the creation of humanity is much more significant in terms of God's purposes and plan throughout the Bible. So, so more detail is desired on the creation of man and woman. As I said, in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the creation of man and woman is simply mentioned in a single sentence, essentially. And, uh, and then... It moves on and talks about how God gave them a commission to have dominion over the rest of the creation. But when you get to chapter 2, verse 4, it goes back to prior to the creation of man. And it tells about, about the creation of man uh, from the dust of the earth. And then it talks about how God put him in the garden and how God brought the animals to the man and the man named the animals. And then uh, since there was no partner for Adam, God made the woman out of man's side. And, and, and this is what that is about. So the, the man and the woman who were mentioned in passing in uh, Genesis 1.26 can be equated with the man and the woman in chapter 2 because it's not a different creation but an, a second look with greater detail at that one creation of man and woman. Now when it says God created male and female, uh, of course we know he created one man and one woman initially and that gave rise to the race, but it's possible that it's even more generic than that in chapter 1, that God made the human race as male and female, which is true. Uh, but it started out with one male <coughs> and one female, and that point is made 
more specifically, of course, in chapter 2. So that's what that chapter's for, and that's why there's a second uh, a repeated uh, coverage of that of that sixth day. All right, let's so talk Joe to Shelby, Jay from Seattle, Washington. Fresh, uh, I was in California. Stop it. Okay. I mean it. Hey, Jay. Okay, I'm going to have to hang up there. That's just... Uh, unfortunately, Jay was probably in a conversation with uh, maybe one of the children or something like that and uh, didn't notice when I put them on. But uh, that's maybe not Jay's fault, but we really can't have airtime devoted to that. So call back, Jay, when you're actually ready to talk on the air, and we can we can get to your call. I'm very interested in hearing from you. Uh, John from Dallas, Texas, welcome to The Narrow Path. Hi, Steve. My question today is related to circumcision and I know what uh, Paul said in the book of Romans and Galatians and other New Testament authors, how it circumcision no longer matters with the New Covenant. So I'm curious why Paul would have circumcised Timothy that we read about in Acts chapter 16. The reason right. is uh, because some of the Jews in that region knew that his Greek was a father. Uh, I don't know why that would matter at all. So uh, I was going to see what you could say about that. It seems like he's respecting the traditions of the Jews, and it just should have been meaningless at that point. So. All right. Yeah, I'll be glad to talk about that. Thank, thank you for your call. Uh, there's a lot of noise in the background, so I'm putting you on hold. And, and if you don't want to stay on the line, you don't have to. Uh, but I'll just answer your call. Uh, in Chapter 16 of Acts, when Paul uh, invited Timothy to go along with him on the remainder of his second missionary journey, and frankly for the rest of Paul's life, Timothy was a traveling companion with him, as was Luke shortly after this, and some others too. Um, Timothy was a young man from, uh, he was biracial. His mother was Jewish, and his father was a Greek. Now, because his mother was Jewish, by many people's interpretations, that would make him a Jew. Today, a Jew would be regarded as such because he has a Jewish mother, even if he doesn't have a Jewish father. I'm not really sure if they were thinking that way in biblical times, but in any case, he was at least half Jewish. And, and many of the Jews would regard Timothy to be Jewish because of that. Now, they also knew that he had a Greek father, and, and Luke in Acts tells us that this is the reason that Paul had Timothy circumcised, because people knew that he had a Greek father. Well, why would that matter? Well, because he would be regarded as a Jew, but they might wonder whether he had been circumcised since his father was not a Jew. You know, it's always possible that his Jewish mother would be glad to have him circumcised, but his father, being a Gentile, might not have had it done. And therefore, he figured there would be some question in people's minds whether Timothy was circumcised or not. And, of course, if Timothy was regarded as a Gentile, it wouldn't matter whether he was circumcised or not. Remember Titus, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says that Titus, who was clearly a Gentile, uh, was not required to be circumcised. When he came to Jerusalem with Paul, it says there were people who wanted to have Titus circumcised because he's a Christian, and they had not yet really clarified at the Jerusalem Council whether a Gentile Christian needs to be circumcised or not. It was later decided they don't, but Paul already knew he didn't, and therefore he would not consent to Titus a Gentile, being circumcised. But Paul had no objection to Jewish people being circumcised. Not that he thought it was necessary. He didn't. He said, you know, in Galatians, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but a new creation. 
and uh, keeping the commandments of God and a faith that works through love. These are the things that Paul says matter rather than whether you're circumcised or not. Paul did not think that Jews had to be circumcised, and he knew that Gentiles should not be. But the thing about Jews is most of them already were circumcised. So, I mean, if, uh, it'd be a crazy thing for Paul to uh, go on a campaign to tell the Jewish believers, don't be circumcised, because they all were. At eight days old, that's when the Jews were circumcised. There was no one listening to Paul who wasn't already uh, circumcised if they were Jewish. Now, Timothy's racial identity was ambiguous. But having a Jewish mother would cause him, in many people's eyes, to be regarded as Jewish. But he wasn't circumcised. And since, uh, you know, people knew his father wasn't a, a Jew, they might suspect, okay, so, uh, you know, people don't go around showing people whether they're circumcised or not. But, but those who thought that Jews should be circumcised could easily have thought, maybe, maybe Timothy isn't. And if asked, Paul wanted Timothy to be able to say, yes, I am. Now, why would that matter? Because... Paul had no interest in uh, abolishing Jewish practices among Jews, even Jewish believers. Remember, when he came to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, James, the Christian apostle there, told Paul, you know, we have a great, a great number of believers here, Jewish believers, and they're zealous for the law. And he said, they've heard rumors about you that you are commanding Jews not to circumcise their children. And so that they know that this isn't true, I want you to go uh, while you're here among us in Jerusalem and participate in the temple ritual, especially related to some Nazarites who needed to pay their fees at the temple. The idea here was <clears throat> Paul uh, did not want to give the impression that he was telling Jews not to circumcise their children. He wasn't. He had no message about that to the Jews. Uh, his, his, he was an apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, in Galatians 2, it says that he and Peter had reached an agreement that Paul and his mission would be toward the Gentiles and Peter's mission toward the Jews. Although, of course, Paul would evangelize Gentiles in the Gentile regions and Peter evangelized Cornelius, a Jew. But the point is that they were focusing their ministry on either the Jewish mission or the Gentile mission. Paul, on the Gentile mission, felt like well, Jewish believers, I'm going to leave that to the Jewish Christian authorities in Jerusalem to decide what they want to do with that. But I, my converts are almost all Gentiles, and I'm not going to let them be circumcised, because to do so is to communicate to them that you have to become a Jew before you can really be a Christian. When a Gentile gets circumcised, at least in those days, it was saying, I'm becoming a Jew, I'm a proselyte, I'm joining the Jewish faith. Remember when Paul said to the Galatians, if you guys get circumcised, you're obligated to keep the whole law, all 613 laws. Why? Because if you get circumcised, you're saying, I'm Jewish. And if you're not saying, I'm Jewish, there's no reason to do it. So I don't want you Gentiles to get circumcised because that's saying and, and affirming that being Jewish is important, and it isn't. But Timothy was Jewish, at least by some definitions, having a Jewish mother made him Jewish. And Paul did not wish to stir up unnecessary problems among Jewish people. He didn't mind uh, you know, taking flack for, for not circumcising you know, the Gentiles like Titus. In fact, it was a statement he wanted made that the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. But Paul was not intruding into that realm which the Jewish apostles in Jerusalem were kind of in charge over. Remember, Jesus had told them that they would, the twelve... 
would sit on 12 thrones judging the house of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, suggesting that their realm of authority was to the Jews primarily, where Paul and his companions were called to go to other people. So Titus was a Gentile. Paul would not even think, would not even tolerate for a moment those who wanted to force Titus to be circumcised. Uh, that, that, he said, would compromise the gospel in Galatians 2. He said that would, the, the gospel would be compromised if we did that. But Paul was favorable, or at least not unfavorable. I don't know if Paul was favorable or not, but he was not unfavorable to the Jewish people being circumcised. Most of them were anyway. I mean, all of them were before they were Christians. And then, you know, if a, if a Jewish Christian had a Jewish baby and wanted to circumcise him, <clears throat> Uh, Paul was not going to interfere with that. Paul was not teaching the Jews not to circumcise their babies. But Timothy, by many definitions a Jew, uh, hadn't been circumcised as a baby, and Paul knew that that would be controversial among those who viewed Timothy as a Jew and would would, uh, raise questions about whether Paul is forbidding circumcision among Jews. So just to clear that up, he said, listen, Timothy, just get circumcised. And then, you know, if we're asked about it, you can say, yeah, I'm circumcised. No, no issue. Um, so that's, in my opinion, that is what was going on there. And that's the reason that Paul had Timothy circumcised. Uh, Victor from the Bay Area, uh, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thank you. Um, I'm sure you've had this question before, but um, it just seems odd in the sense that the um, – in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments would not have addressed, you know, as, as something you don't want to do is, is is the question of slavery. And it's almost ironic that, you know, Moses coming out of Egypt with the Jews out of slavery, you would think if that wouldn't be number one on the list, it would be high up there. And it's hard for me to imagine a, a bigger crime to commit against another human being than to make them a slave. I mean, if I steal their car, that's bad, and I guess that's addressed in the Ten Commandments. But if I consider them my property and they become my slave or they're in their family or whatever, that seems like a whole order of magnitude worse. But from what I, I – the Ten Commandments apparently seem to be um, silent on the issue. Yeah, well, you know, when you say that having slaves seems like a orders of magnitude worse than – stealing or adultery or killing and the things that the Ten Commandments actually speak about. That's when we feel that way, it's it's a cultural feeling. Uh, for thousands of years nobody thought to say slavery is morally wrong. Now why not? There certainly were a lot of moral evils associated with it, especially what we call Atlantic slavery or African slavery in this country and in Europe in the days before the abolition movement. Um, Truly, I mean, slavery involved a great number of crimes, the, the first of which was kidnapping people from their own country. You know, the, the law of Moses did talk about that. Uh, if you read Gen, uh, Exodus uh, chapters uh, 20 through 23, uh, God gave a lot of rules that were kind of unpacking the Ten Commandments. And one of them is that whoever steals a man uh, would be put to death. You know, it was kidnapping. Kidnapping was a, a capital crime. Now, that would be included in thou shalt not steal, okay? Now, African slavery, as we know it, uh, virtually none of the slaves who came here in the slave ships, none of them were voluntary slaves. They'd been taken against their will by force. 
most of them had been taken from their African tribes by captors who were from other African tribes. Uh, you know, the white slave traders bought slaves, uh, black African slaves, from other black Africans who, who had conquered them. I mean, sla slavery was practiced in Africa long before white people had black slaves. But, you know, some of these tribes that enslaved others sold their, you know, the people they caught to, to the white people. And they brought them over here to slave. And that was terrible. I, I, I mean, it's a horrible sin. And it was forbidden in Scripture. To kidnap somebody is a capital punishment in, in the law. So, I mean, God didn't approve of that. Now, but we have to remember, and for many people they've never known this, but slavery did not always involve capturing people against their will. In the Roman Empire and in Israel and in many parts of the world, slavery was entered into voluntarily by people who were incapable of supporting themselves and their families. It was a, a, not uncommon at all for a man who was indigent, a man who was uh, bankrupt, uh, unable to pay his debts uh, and so forth, uh, that he'd sell himself into slavery for the, for the sake of economic security. Now, in America, we have to avoid being too provincial. You know, we have been born and raised in a country which for 200 or more years has uh, had the idea all men are created equal, everyone has the right to their liberty, uh, everyone can, you know, no one should control anybody else. Of course, that's not true. We let, you know, dictators control people and, and even our employers uh, often overly control people. Sometimes pastors do wrongfully. But the point is, we have this uh, in our DNA in America. People should all be treated uh, with equal liberty. And that's fine. I'm not against that. But not everyone always thought that way. And, you know, we might say, well, no one should be able to sell themselves into slavery because that makes them a slave. That makes them something that people shouldn't have to be. Well, uh, a person who sells himself into slavery would do it principally because that was better for him than the condition he was in, not in slavery. Now, certainly not all the slaves in biblical times were voluntary slaves, but a very large number were. And the law of Moses actually talks about, you know, if a man sells himself into slavery, or he might maybe sells his children into slavery, that this is assumed to be because he can't take care of himself. If he, if he could, who, why would you ever sell yourself or anyone into slavery? The point is this is a survival uh, strategy. They are going to starve, they're, they're poor, they're bankrupt, they, you know, they can be beggars, or they can hire themselves out. Now, if a Jewish man hired himself out or, or sold himself to be a slave to another Jewish man, the law specifically says that he's only an indentured servant for seven years. It says that if, you know, uh, if he sells himself into slavery, you have to give him his freedom after seven years. But it does say if after seven years he wants to stay a slave, it says, hey, this is a comfortable gig here, man. I don't want to go out. I, I couldn't take care of myself before as a slave. I don't have any reason why I can do so now. So could I just stay here? It's comfortable. Then, of course, the Bible makes a provision for that, that they can become a slave for life to their master. Now, that sounds horrible to us. But if it sounded as horrible to the slave as it sounds to us, he'd never make that decision. It, we can't even imagine how anyone would choose to be a slave for life. But that's because we're, we're mostly middle class people and above, and we're comfortable without that. But in ancient times, and frankly, right up until the Industrial Revolution a few centuries ago, 
there was no such thing as a middle class. Everyone was either born to wealth or they're born to total dirt poverty. And dirt poverty is not very fun. And so if a man was totally poor, couldn't pay his bills, had debts, couldn't support his family, and there was a wealthy man who needed somebody to work his field or to you know, clean the house or whatever, and, and uh, a man said, let me sell myself to you as a slave, that would put the man in a financially secure position. It's not the same as being kidnapped, as African slaves were when they came here. You see, slavery in this country was totally immoral because it began with kidnapping, because it was involuntary. But much slavery, both in Israel and in the Roman Empire, was voluntary. And there's nothing immoral about that. People say, well, why didn't Paul just uh, abolish slavery? Why didn't Paul write to the slave masters and say, let your slaves go? Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Some of those slaves didn't want to go and, and did not. They'd been free before and couldn't take care of themselves. So they chose slavery. Uh, if, you know, putting them out on the street again where they don't know how to take care of themselves and don't have any security, that might have not have been desirable. Now, you know, Paul did say, treat your slaves as equals, as brothers, treat them fairly, consider their needs, and so forth. In other words, if somebody is your slave, and maybe that's what they want to be because that's security for them, well, treat them kindly, as if they weren't a slave. They'll still have to serve because that's what slaves do. It's like being an employee 24-7. But, yeah, to say in the Ten Commandments, no slaves... Well, for about 6,000 years, that would put a lot of people who were slaves into a hard situation that they actually preferred not to be in. And so the Bible does forbid the kind of slavery we had in this country. It didn't, it didn't abolish voluntary slavery. And uh, so, or, or even uh, there's some, you know, prisoner of war slavery is another thing too. But that's another story. The main thing is to realize that slavery has different forms, some of them greatly immoral and some simply an economic uh, condition that some people prefer. We're going to take a break. <coughs> You're listening to The Narrow Path. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. We have another half hour coming up. Don't go away. Is the Great Tribulation about to begin? Are we seeing the fulfillment of biblical prophecy unfolding before our very eyes? In the series, When Shall These Things Be?, Steve Gregg answers these and many other intriguing questions. The lecture series entitled, When Shall These Things Be?, can be downloaded in MP3 format without charge from our website, thenarrowpath.com. Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour, during which we spend the entire time taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, or you disagree with the host and want to talk about that, I welcome you to call me right now. The number is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. All right, our next caller is uh, Karen from Boise, Idaho. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the Narrow Path. 
Thanks for calling. Hi there, Steve. Um, I have a question about one-third of the angelic beings that were swept to the earth, which you mentioned last week. And I, I'm wondering where on the earth are they now? I know we have some reference to them in the New Testament, but I'm kind of wondering how big is that number? Are they concentrated in certain areas? And what specifically are they doing on a daily basis, so to speak? Well, first of all, uh, the mention of a third of the angels falling or being swept to the earth uh, did come up in an earlier call last, last uh, week. But, uh, as I said there, we don't actually have any statement in the Bible that says a third of the angels fell. We have two statements in the Bible that tell us that some angels have fallen. One of those is in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and the other is in uh, Jude, verse 6. Both places mention that some angels have sinned, but it tells us that those angels are kept in chains under darkness, or in, uh, in Peter it says, in Tartarus which is uh, translated hell in most English Bibles, but that it, it does not describe these, uh, these angels as actually being on earth at this present time. Now, uh, they might be, but then we have to harmonize that with them being in Tartarus, too. Uh, the Bible indicates that that's where they are now. Um, but where do we get the idea that a third of the angels fell? Well, uh, I mentioned that, that actually is taken from an interpretation of Revelation 12, verse 4, which could be saying something like that, but it's not necessary. It's not clearly saying that. In uh, Revelation 12, 4, it says, The dragon's tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Okay? Now, this is where you get the idea that a third of the angels felt, that the dragon, who is seen uh, menacing the pregnant woman who is about to give birth to the Messiah, uh, he dragged with his tail a third of the stars and cast them to the earth. Now, are the stars the angels? Maybe. It's hard to say. You know, Revelation has referred to angels previously in the first three chapters where it talks about the seven angels of the seven churches. But the Greek word angel, angelos, is a generic word for messengers. Um, and, uh, and human messengers are sometimes referred to angeloi, angels. Also, the, the word angelos in Greek can refer to, you know, what we usually think of when we talk about angels, these supernatural beings from heaven, messengers. But it's a, it's a generic Greek word used also of human messengers. Several times in the New Testament it's used that way. Now, how is it used in Revelation? Well, that's ambiguous. In the first three chapters where we read repeatedly of the seven angels to the seven churches, of an extremely common interpretation that most commentators follow is that it's talking about the preachers of the churches, the, the human messengers. So, angeloi, seven angels in Revelation uh, 1 through 3, uh, is often, I would say, fairly mainstream commentators believe that's referring to the pastors or the messengers of God, the human ones, in the churches. Now, if that is true, then these angels might be human also. Now, there's good reason to believe that they are in this case, because the idea of the dragon casting uh, you know, angels to the ground with his tail is one of those many times in Revelation that imagery is taken from the book of Daniel. And uh, in Daniel chapter 8, there's a prophecy about Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a dictator 
a Syrian dictator around 167 or 168 BC who uh, conquered and oppressed and persecuted the Jews. Actually, his, his atrocities led to what's called the Maccabean Revolt and the liberation of Israel by the Maccabees. But uh, this persecution or oppression of the Jews is spoken of in Daniel chapter 8 and in verse 10, speaking about this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, it says in Daniel 8.10, it, it, meaning this little horn that represents Antiochus, it grew up to the host of heaven and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now, this is an activity of, of a tyrant, a Syrian king, Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And it says that he exalted himself to heaven. Of course, the king of Babylon is said to have done that also in uh, Isaiah 13. And in uh, Obadiah, the Edomites are said to have exalted themselves to heaven too. And in, in Matthew chapter uh, 11, Jesus said that Capernaum uh, exalted itself to heaven too. So, I mean, this is not literally uh, going up there. This is just saying they're arrogant. But when it says that Antiochus cast some of the stars and the host of heaven to the ground and trampled them, well, I'll tell you, historically, Antiochus didn't have any impact on heavenly uh, beings, uh, but he did have a terrible impact on many godly people. Uh, he, he persecuted what we call the Hasidim, which were the, the uncompromising uh, saintly Jewish people. He killed them and uh, oppressed them horribly. And this is almost certainly what's referred to here. Now, to confirm that, if you would go to, say, uh, Daniel chapter 12, just four chapters later, it says um, in verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. So in Daniel 12, the stars are likened to people who turn others to righteousness. In Daniel 8.10, the stars cast the ground are almost certainly the godly Jews that Antiochus persecuted. So when this imagery of casting stars to the ground is repeated in Revelation 12.4, it's not, to my mind, it's not likely that it's talking about angels, like angels of God. It uses the word angeloi, angels, but I think it's probably using it the same way that it was used in Daniel which is no doubt the source of such imagery in Revelation. So he's talking about casting down people, godly people. And uh, so that being the case, it is at least a possibility that Revelation 12.4 is not talking about what we call angels at all. So it says he cast a third of the stars to the ground. It all hangs on, well, is, do the stars represent angels here, or do they represent godly people? And uh, I would say an excellent case can be made for the latter, which means that this verse does not mention a third of the angels falling, and nor does any other verse in the Bible. So, uh, I don't know how many angels fell. We know some did. The idea that it's a third of the angels usually comes from a rather careless reading of the book of Revelation by people who, uh, you know, I, I, don't know I, I, I don't know what to say about them, but I don't know how they got that idea from there. Uh, well, I mean, I'm not going to criticize. I'm just going to say that one verse is the whole source of that one idea, and in my opinion, that one verse is not being 
understood very uh, correctly by those who see it that way. So I don't have any reason to believe a third of the angels fell. Some angels fell. But the ones who did, we're told they're in uh, Tartarus. They're in hell. They're in chains. Now, of course, someone says, well, but aren't they the demons? Well, I don't know that they are. You know, they could be. I certainly grew up with the idea that the demons exist as fallen angels. Now, perhaps that's true, but the Bible doesn't ever equate the demons with fallen angels. There are fallen angels, which are mentioned only a few times, and then there are demons, which are mentioned a lot of times, and there's no passage that equates the demons with the fallen angels. It's, therefore, within the realm of possibility to say that angels, some angels have fallen, and then there's another class of evil beings called demons, evil spirits, and they come from somewhere else. Now, of course, your question is, what are these, what are these you know, fallen beings doing and so forth? That's a, you know, that's a very important, not a very important question, but it's a very uh, common question. Apparently, we're not supposed to know because we're not told. I am of the conviction that when God inspired the apostles and prophets to write his word, uh, that, that he, uh, there are all things necessary for life and godliness are included in what God had placed in the Bible which means that the things that are not stated in the Bible are not essential for life and godliness, but are what we could call matters of curiosity, very much in the same category as uh, are there space aliens out there? Well, maybe, maybe they're not. The Bible doesn't say. It must not be important for us to know. Now, someone might say, well, I, it's important for me to know. No, it's, you're just very curious, and I understand that. I'm very curious about a number of things, too, but I, I, sometimes we just have to say, well, you know, it's within the realm of possibility that such and such is so, but the Bible does not tell us whether it's so or not. So it remains entirely a matter of human uh, guesswork. Now, I, I totally believe there are demons uh, at work among us. I believe that we wrestle against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places, like Paul said in Ephesians 6. But I don't... Um, I don't know if those are the fallen angels or not. They might be, or they might not be. And apparently, if I needed to know, the Bible would say. And uh, I know you ask because you probably wonder, what does the Bible say about it? And, and all I can answer, answer, honestly, is the Bible says nothing about the particular thing you're asking. And it says very little on the general subject of the origin or activities of fallen angels and of demons, and whether even those are the same things or different things. Uh, you know, it's, I, there are certain things that fascinate Christians to talk about, the Nephilim and things like that. And yet the Bible says so little about them, and, and what it says is ambiguous enough that it seems clear to me that it's not something that we have to know. And, and, and virtually everything that the Bible is silent about is unimportant to how I live my Christian life. And so in my, in my life, I have come to differentiate between things in the Bible that are uh, helpful for me to know, and, and frankly, those things are all pretty much there and reasonably clear. And then those things that are just what I would categorize as matters of curiosity. Now, there's a lot of those too, and those are the, would be things that God doesn't really care to tell us. It's like when the disciples asked, "Lord, will you at this time uh, restore the kingdom to Israel?" Well, they thought that was pretty important, but Jesus said, "It's not for you to know." the times and the seasons which the Father's put in his own power. Uh, you just go evangelize the world. So, you know, it's like, well, there's lots of things we're curious about, the time and seasons and so forth, but Jesus said, that's, that's not for you to know. God knows all that stuff that we don't know. 
he's told us the stuff we need to know. And so kind of that's where I'm at about these fallen angels and stuff. I'm curious, too. Honestly, I mean, I like, like you. I'm curious about those things. But uh, there comes a time when we have to say, well, I guess God didn't think that that's the most important thing for me to know or for me to know it at all, maybe. I'm sorry to not be able to do better than that. Uh, I would I'd do as well as I could with the material we have. Uh, Jeanette from Massachusetts, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Yeah, hi. I had a question. Um, I had a question about, um, so there's three different people that I'm thinking about. Little children, those with mental disabilities, you know, maybe retardation or something, or those with mental illness. And my question is about, you know, heaven. Do do they kind of get like a free pass? I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> Well, um, we, we aren't told very much about heaven in the Bible, believe it or not. Some people think that's what the Bible is all about, heaven and hell. Uh, the Bible very rarely talks about people going to heaven, though it is, it is a subject that is mentioned or alluded to on a few occasions. But uh, if we think of heaven, meaning when people die, certain people are on good terms with God, and therefore they live on in, in a good way with God, in a good place with God, uh, I would say... Uh, obviously, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But what if somebody is incapable of coming to repentance? Because, as you say, they might be mentally disabled, they, uh, you know, extremely so. Uh, or they might be just little children who simply don't have uh, a sophisticated understanding of moral reality, and they die in that condition. I don't believe that God is their enemy. I believe God is the friend of mankind. Jesus was the friend of sinners. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save them. So, I mean, God's default attitude is not anger toward people. And unless they manage to be among the few who get to hear the gospel and repent when they're, uh, you know, before they die, and then he'll, you know, well, he'll, he'll make an exception for them and send them to heaven because he simply can't send them to hell. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's the picture of God the Bible gives. The Bible pictures God as the friend of of the world. He loves the world. Greater love has no one than this than he lays down his life for his friends. And Jesus raised, Jesus actually died for the whole world. So uh, God is loves the world. That doesn't mean everyone's saved because some people don't love him. I mean, there are some people who respond to God's overtures uh, with rebellion and with hatred and with, uh, you know, fleeing from God and so forth. People like that. I don't know how God could save them. You know, they, they won't come to him. Remember, Jesus uh, said uh, you know, to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for them. You think you have eternal life, but they speak of me and you won't come to me. Or he said to Jerusalem in uh, Matthew uh, twenty-three thirty-seven, I think it is. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. I mean, God wants to gather everybody to him. He's not willing that any should perish, uh, but that everyone would repent. Okay, so God is on the side of humans, wanting them to repent, wanting them to come to him, wanting them all to be saved. Now, what's he going to do with the people who simply that's not an option for them? They're, you know, they're severely uh, mentally uh, incapacitated, or they're just too young, too, too immature to understand any of this stuff. And they die. In my opinion, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And I believe that uh, those who've never 
been c- capable of knowing or hearing or uh, having any moral awareness, uh, I don't think he's going to hold it against them. I think he's going to say, Jesus died for you too, uh, and, and you know, because they didn't reject him. Here's, here's what I believe. I mean, I, I kind of have maybe the opposite view of what a lot of people might have. A lot of people think uh, since everybody is tainted by sin, God hates everybody. Uh, unless they turn to Jesus, and then he's really, he'll give them a break, maybe a little reluctantly, but he'll give them a break and save them. Uh, no, the Bible says that God loves everybody, and, but he can't save everybody because many people choose rebellion against him. And little children, for example, I can't speak for those who are uh, mentally deficient, but I imagine they'd be similar to little children. Uh, little children who don't know anything, I don't think they're held responsible for anything until they are of an age usually referred to as the age of accountability. At that point, they are required to repent and, and follow Christ. But, the, you know, the sins they commit in infancy and so forth that they don't know about, I don't think that's held against them until they're mature enough to know that they have committed such sins. And that but we're saying when we talk about being saved, we're talking about heaven? Well, I don't equate the two things. Certainly people who are saved will all go to heaven. I do believe that. Although I don't, I don't plan to live there forever, because when Jesus comes back, he's going to make a new heavens, new earth, and I'm going to live with him there. I don't want to be in heaven when he's here. I want to be where he is. But, uh, yeah, if I die, I'll go to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul said in Second Corinthians 5. And uh, so I plan when I die to go be with the Lord in heaven. But when he leaves heaven and comes back here and uh, you know, sets up the new Jerusalem here and, uh, and governs the world, I have planned to be with him. I plan to be here. But that's still saved. I mean, that's, you know, whether whether it's geographically in heaven or the new earth, uh, it's all the same to me because it's Jesus is the fascination, not the, not the location. Uh, but I will say this, that um, when I talk about being saved, I'm not thinking primarily of where I spend eternity, though that's a function of being saved. When you're saved, obviously, you have eternal life. You're going to be with God. You're on good terms. If you're justified, he's got nothing against you, and he will not punish you for anything, and you'll live on good terms with him forever. But being saved is more than that in the Bible. In fact, it's, it's very seldom spoken of, the afterlife. Sometimes, but not very often. What's always spoken about is being reconciled with God, being on good terms with God, living with God, loving God, loving my neighbor so I can please God, uh, being uh, saved from the power of the sins in my life so that I can live a holy life for God. Salvation is a much bigger picture in the Bible than just going to heaven. Salvation is being returned to the proper relationship with God, reconciled with God. Now, that means that, uh, you know, before I'm a Christian, I'm not reconciled to God. I need to, I need to get reconciled because I'm not living for God. I'm not living under his lordship. I'm not honoring him. I'm not pleasing him. Uh, he made me for a purpose, and I'm not fulfilling that purpose. So salvation is being brought back into that right relationship. And, of course, the, the ultimate consequence of that is when I die, I, I remain on good terms with him, wherever he is, in heaven, the new earth, wherever. But, the, but salvation uh, in the Bible, is the emphasis is not on post-mortem destinies. It's, it, the emphasis is on living with Christ, living for Christ, pleasing Christ, doing all things for the glory of God, uh, fulfilling the purpose that God has, you know, being part of the body of Christ and doing the function that the part I am is supposed to be doing. Uh, almost the entire New Testament is about this life. 
with occasional glimpses of the afterlife. So when I think of salvation, uh, that includes, yes, going to heaven, but that's not the whole of it. Now, the thing is, a child, or let's say a mentally deficient person who dies without knowing Christ, uh, maybe they do go to heaven, but they have missed out. And it's a tragic thing. It's not their fault. That is, they have missed out on being, uh, you know, a servant of God in, as, a, as a mature adult. You know, that's not their fault. And God doesn't blame them for it, but they've missed out on that. One of the greatest mm-hmm. joys is to know God and to walk with God and live with God and, and be saved in this life as well as the next. So, you know, those who don't know any better, I don't think God, you know, punishes them for what they don't know. That's my understanding, anyway. I appreciate your call. I need to take another. Travis from San Diego, California. Welcome. How you doing, Steve? Right, fine. You heard you heard about the shooting yesterday at uh, Lakewood Church, Joel Osteen? You know what? I did not. I haven't heard the news in the last 48 hours at all. What, what yeah, happened? There's a, there's a young lady. Um, she put out a gun and tried to shoot one of the parishioner parishioners, and they shot her dead. She had a baby in her arm. The baby is in critical condition. Now, this happened during the, the um, Spanish service hmm. before the English service started it. And um, anyway, he got on television, Osteen, and said he doesn't know why it happened. I mean, in my opinion, I mean, he, he probably don't know why she did that, but I'm thinking it's just sin. So I think he should have just said that. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, well, you know, I'm I'm not a huge fan of Osteen. Uh, I'll tell you. I mean, I don't watch his uh, broadcasts, and his message is somewhat uh, has a very different emphasis than mine does. And I, I'm just not really aligned with his ministry that much. But I'm not going to find fault with him unnecessarily if he says I don't know why this woman did that. And we could say, well, it's because of sin. Well, I don't know if he's saying. I mean, if someone asked him the theological reason why people do such things, then obviously he could say because of sin. But if someone says, why did this person do this particular thing? They're not usually asking, what is the nature of fallen man? They're wondering, what motivated this person? Why, why would someone, I mean, most everyone in the room has sin in them, but only one person pulled out a gun and tried to kill someone. So, uh, so in other words, this person, besides being a sinner, as we all are, had additional reasons, which are perhaps a mysterious uh, thing for anyone to discover. Maybe we'll never know for doing that. I think if Joel, I didn't hear the story, but I'm just going by what your report. If Joel Osteen said, I don't know why she did this, you know, obviously there's there's different levels of that. If, you know, if he says, uh, if you thought he was saying, oh, people are basically good. I don't know why anyone would do something like this. Uh, then I would disagree with him because I don't think people are basically good. I think sin uh, leads us all to to do bad things. But on the other hand, uh, not all sinners do the same bad things. And the specific bad things that people do usually are motivated by specific motivations. So I'm I'm not going to criticize Joel for this if that's what he said. I, um, you know, he's not really. Uh, the times I've heard him, he doesn't really get deep into theology anyway. So I, it would, it would uh, not, my first impression would not be uh, he's trying to give a theological uh, you know, answer here. I think he's trying to give a 
a, a sociological answer or a psychological answer, which, by the way, there are such answers. I mean, she did have some reason she did it specifically, and that's what I think he's saying he didn't know. I mean, if, if they'd asked John Piper, uh, maybe he would say, oh, it's because of sin, because he's all into theology. And uh, I don't think Joel Osteen uh, thinks very often about theology, so I wouldn't have expected him to give that kind of an answer. Again, I'm not... I'm not ragging on Osteen. I, there's lots of things he teaches uh, that I would not teach. Uh, there are uh, There's an emphasis in his ministry that is not the emphasis that I think is the most desirable uh, for a pastor to emphasize. But um, And I don't even know what his personal life is like. I, 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 don't, I don't judge the man. Uh, but I'm going to give him a, a favorable, uh, you know, benefit of the doubt, let's say, you know, uh, I don't think that he said what he said because he's denying that there is such a thing as sin. I think he's not giving a, not trying to give a, a, a theological answer, and and nor would he be required to. I don't think anyone who asked him why did this happen would be saying, "Could you give me a theology about original sin and and the imparted, uh, the imputed nature of Adam and so forth?" No, they're they're more interested in this particular event. It's not surprising that people sin, but it's very surprising that a woman holding a baby would pull out a gun in a church and try to kill people. That's very surprising, and that's what would require, uh, if we wanted to understand it, uh, somewhat more specific of an explanation. So I'm, I'm going to go with Joel on this and say, you know, I don't agree with all his theology, but I'm not going to pick on him, you know, when it's not necessary to do so. I appreciate your call. Um, I have uh, run out of time for today's show, but the wonderful thing is this is only Monday. That means we have four more hours this week together. My apologies to the many of you who are waiting to go on and we didn't get to your call, but again, call tomorrow, the next day, any day. We've been doing this daily for 27 years, thousands and thousands of programs uh, we've had. And so uh, you're listening to The Narrow Path. My name is Steve Gregg. We are listener-supported. We pay the radio stations for the time. And we don't have commercial sponsors, nor do we sell anything. So if you'd like to help us stay on the air, you can write to The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593, or go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again tomorrow. God bless you.